Our God is a God of unlimited light, and he calls us to share that light with others. As we give it away generously, in a paradoxical way, we get brighter. We are blessed by being a blessing, giving time and talents, attention and connection, compassion and kindness, and grace in love. It takes a shift in focus off of ourselves and onto others. It can't be faked or fabricated. It has to be desired. It fills us up, and we can't help but spill Jesus onto those around us. So what would happen if we intentionally pursued a life of living generously? And what would it take to be known for our genuine and extravagant generosity? God has called us to live a life more abundant. And that truly comes when we become generous. Well, good morning. Uh, fall is definitely here. If you didn't get blown around yesterday in the wind, uh, congratulations. Good to have you here today. Those of you in Skagit, glad that you're with us again today. And uh, with uh, Pastor Scott down there with you this week as Pastor Brian's on vacation, uh, glad that you're with us as well. And, um, and also for uh, Trinity Church of God in Boca Raton, thanks for, for being with us. Uh, I want to give you a little bit of an update over the last three or four months, there's a church in Auburn, Crossway Church, that's been without a pastor. And so they've been joining us and very excited. They have a pastor who's going to start, I believe, next week. So they will no longer be joining us. Uh, Auburn, thanks. It was great getting to know you, kind of. So we're, we really are excited about what God has for you in this, uh, this next chapter. And uh, also, you know, every week we, we talk about, it recently, like not every week forever, but in the last eight or nine weeks, we've talked about this group that's meeting down in Belize in San Pedro. And people have asked me, so now where is Belize again? Uh, we have a map here, um, in case you didn't do good in geography. This is the United States, Mexico. Belize is down here on the uh, Yucatan Peninsula, just below uh, Mexico. And, and there, uh, Chris and Katie just decided to, to start uh, a Cornwall gathering eight or nine weeks ago. They're at Hope Haven. They've got a little Cornwall sign they put out on the street. And uh, this, I think, is a picture from last week. Um, and last week, after eight or nine weeks of just saying, let's, let's try Cornwall, they had 42 people at church last week. Yeah, yeah unbelievable. And... Uh, just a, a ton of kids down there that they're working with and the a Children's Ministry Explorers League down in, in San Pedro, and that's so cool. So Chris and Katie and, and all of you at Cornwall and in Hope Haven, uh, glad that you're with us as well. Interesting thing, last Sunday morning, um, got a, Pastor Jeff, our executive pastor, got a text from a, a gal who was on our staff. Anna Pimento was on our staff for a while. She is currently in Haiti, in St. Mark, at the YWAM base, Youth with a Mission, doing a discipleship training school. And she sent this picture. She has her own little Cornwall gathering going in Haiti now. So, uh, um, so it's good to have uh, you in, in Haiti at, at the YWAM base. And who knows where else? Uh, but we're just excited. Uh, those of you watching online with the live stream. And today, we have like the encounter lounge over here. What is that about? Yeah, I don't know if they're serving breakfast or what, but that's where I want to be. That's just uh, good to have you guys uh, with us. I'm excited. We're starting a, a brand new series uh, today for the next seven weeks. Uh, before we get into that, I want to um, I want to just mention something, that, and I know it's not healthy for a pastor to use a congregation as a support group and a uh, thing, but this is going to be a little bit of group therapy for me. Um, as a pastor, and I'm not alone in this because uh, many of my friends have heard this too, there's a statement that pastors hear occasionally. 
And it's a statement um, that is actually sometimes confusing a little bit. Um, it's a little bit frustrating. It's a little bit disheartening at times and can even be discouraging. And, and let me say before I tell you the statement, let me make sure you're clear in case you're not sure about me. I love, absolutely love that we are people who are immersing ourselves in God's word. We're learning it, we're reading it, we're studying it. Those kind of things that we study to show ourselves approved. I love, as it says in 2 Peter, you know, that you would grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews it says, let us leave the elementary teachings of the faith and go on to maturity. I love all of that. The statement that, that sometimes pastors hear, and I've heard it and many of my friends have heard it, sometimes is, Pastor, I just need or I just want deeper teaching. And, um, and not taking that personally, but here's the part that's a little confusing about that statement. What is it and who is it that qualifies what goes into the category of deeper teaching? I mean, is it deeper if it's something I've never heard before? Does that make it deeper? Is it deeper if it's got some original Greek language or Hebrew that I can't understand, but it makes it feel deeper? Man, that was deep. I don't get it, but it was deep. <laughs> is it deeper because it was the Old Testament, especially like if it's out of Leviticus or, or uh, Ezekiel or something? I mean, what, what qualifies teaching as deeper? Because and, 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 that's very subjective. And the other thing, and this is, this is just in my little brain, I think sometimes people are actually talking about a style preference rather than a depth. That they, they're, when they say, I need deeper teaching, they may be talking about a style of preaching. I'll give you the example. They might be, and this is what I've, I've, I think I've narrowed it down mostly in the past, they might be talking about, we want verse by verse ex exegetical teaching. Just go verse by verse. And that somehow there's this idea that going verse by verse is deeper than going verse with verse on a topical subject and looking at what's found throughout scripture. And, and, and that's okay, but these people are like, we need verse by verse. Now, this again, this is kind of cathartic for me. That's wonderful. Jesus did that once and they tried to throw him off the cliff and from there on he just told stories. So anyway, I'm just, I'm just saying. Okay, okay, okay. But I, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm not against, I love verse by verse. I love how we walk through Ephesians. I love when we've spent six or eight weeks on the Lord's Prayer or on a passage out of Philippians or out of one of the Psalms. I love that. And I think, and we strive to have a good balance of that. The other thing is, is not just the confusion of what is deep teaching, but it's the frustration that sometimes, not always, sometimes when someone says, Pastor, I just want, I just need deeper teaching, while that sounds very spiritual, it can have an underlying spiritual arrogance. The, the teaching you do was okay while I was a young Christian, but now I've aspired to a level where I desire and require deeper teaching. And, and I tell you what, as, as a pastor, that's frustrating. That's frustrating. Because sometimes there's this spiritual pride and this spiritual arrogance. And, and the reality is, listen, if you've reached that level of spiritual maturity where you require deeper teaching, then you ought to be able to feed yourself. So read the Bible and feed yourself six days a week and then come to church and serve those who aren't at your level like Jesus would. Okay, I feel much better now. Anyway, I'm sorry, just go feed yourself, okay? So uh, I want all of us to be able to feed ourselves. Now, several years ago, and this was a while back, and I won't tell you the man's name because he would be terribly embarrassed. We were having this discussion with our elders, 
asking about, you know, there were some people that left, so we just need te- deeper teaching. Great, good. And so we're having this discussion. I went to them and said, help me out with this, because I'm the one that's the primary delivery of, of the apparently shallow messages. <laughs> I'm sorry. My sarcasm is coming out right now, isn't it? I'm sorry. <laughs> Please forgive me. Some of you are saying, I'm leaving this church. <laughs> I would too. Okay, so... Um, so we were having this discussion, and there was a, a man on our elder board. He's not on our board anymore. This was years ago. And this man is rock solid in his faith, a man of God, grounded in the word, loves Jesus, loves the church of Jesus Christ, serves. And, and so I asked him, and we'll call him Wilbur, because I don't think we have anyone in our church named Wilbur. So we'll call him Wilbur. That's not his real name. And I looked at him and said, Wilbur, just be straight with me. Why do you come to Cornwall and listen to my sermons, if they're so shallow or whatever? Because you're solid. You're mature in your faith. And he gave me what I felt like was one of the most spiritually mature, humble, um, great statements of all. And he said, quite frankly, he wasn't, I mean, he was just very, just honest and genuine. He said, when I can fully live out what I already know from the Bible, then I'll be ready for some deeper teaching. I thought, that's just it. It's not just about filling our heads with more information. It's about taking God's word and letting it bring about transformation in our lives. That's the deeper thing. Listen, if our love for information, even biblical information, does not lead us to a greater love of Jesus Christ and a life transformed by his spirit, then we've missed the boat. Hear me all the way out on this. If if we love the Bible more than we love Jesus, more than we love his work within us, we've made the Bible an idol. Now listen, some of you will say, Pastor Bob said reading the Bible is idolatry. No, I didn't. <laughs> listen to me here. If the Bible's all about, well, I just need more knowledge, need more information, wanna go deeper with the Bible, but it doesn't change my heart and my love for Christ and make me more like him, as it says in 2 Corinthians, that we would be transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, then we've missed the boat. All right, I feel so much better. (laughs) Send me a bill. All right. The reason I say all of that is not because I'm ticked off because someone sent me a letter and email. I'm okay, you don't have to worry about me. But I wanna start this sermon and this series with one verse, I wanna start with one verse, 11 words that does not have deep theological mysteries shrouding it. You don't have to know Greek and Hebrew and get back into the depths of all whatever to understand this verse. But this 11 word verse has such profound practical application that will transform our lives. It is amazing. It's in a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Philippi. And in the middle of this letter, he's talking to them. And in chapter two, he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and I talked about you know, being one, the, the union with Christ, that being in Christ two weeks ago. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, which is an amazing thing, how could you not be encouraged to recognize that you are in Christ? If you have any comfort from his love, he goes on. And, and we, you know, we saw in Ephesians how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. If you don't have comfort from his love, you don't understand his love. If you have any fellowship with the Spirit, what a beautiful picture, fellowship, keeping in step with the Spirit, hearing his still small voice, being convicted, being empowered, being gifted by the Holy Spirit. If you have any fellowship with the Spirit, if you have any tenderness or compassion, these attributes of God, he says, if, 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 then, 
Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And then he just exhorts them. You know, do, not, uh, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. Consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. And when he lays all this out, this if, then, and here's this exhortation, then he drops this 11-word bombshell that we often go over so quickly because then he goes into what many consider was one of the early hymns of the early church. But it's these words. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, some of you who have teenage children just found your new family verse. And you're gonna smash your kids over the head with this every time they cop a little attitude. Let me remind you, while that's all applicable, this doesn't say your children's attitude, doesn't say your spouse's attitude, your pastor's attitude, your small group's attitude, your neighbor's attitude, your boss's attitude. This says your, your, your. Look in the mirror. This is you. Your attitude, and it's not just be happy and smiley. Attitude is a mindset that impacts a lifestyle. It's a way of thinking that directs your behavior. He says, think about you and how you think and how you live that out. Your attitude should be the same, not kind of resembling, not similar, not with, with little uh, you know, hues and hints of, the same, identical, carbon copy, the same as that of Christ Jesus. And he sets the bar about as high as it can be set. Now I want to tell you that verse, those 11 words, that is not deep theological mystery. But I will spend the rest of my life trying to apply that verse to my life. Until that day when Jesus takes me or comes back and I'm fully, you know, made all things new, for the rest of my life, I'm going to be trying to live that verse out. And for the next seven weeks, as we go into this series, I want us to take that to understand what is the attitude, the, the mindset that changes the behavior? What is the attitude of Christ and how can we live that? And one of the attitudes that was, is really the foundation of the whole, the whole series can be found in a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth when he writes these words, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we're covering that next week, do not miss next week, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Okay, now this one's getting a little deeper, but here's the reality. Jesus, who has all things, makes himself nothing, willingly, with an attitude, pours himself out so that we who have nothing can have everything. When you say this, you're like, Jesus, what were you thinking? What was your attitude? And what you find here is a life of generosity. There is no one who has ever lived a more generous life than Jesus. Jesus is the most generous person who ever walked the face of the planet. I mean, what did he say of himself? The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His whole life was about generosity. For God so loved the world, he gave. It's all about this generosity and to have this attitude. When you begin to just stop right there, if you want deep, deep teaching, just stop right there. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, and that's a life of generosity. If we just worked on that, 
man, we've got marching orders for the rest of our days to see that. Now, we've called this series Generous, and this is our logo. Now, if you're colorblind, this is, my next part isn't going to mean a whole lot to you because you don't, you don't see what I'm talking about here. <laughs> Ask somebody, okay? Generous, that this is something that we ought to have, this attitude, this lifestyle. Because those of us who are followers after Christ, we are the recipients of the most extravagant, irrational, unthinkable, ridiculous generosity of all. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is ours. Jesus poured himself out completely so that we could have it all. We've received that kind of generosity. We ought to be the most generous people on the face of the planet. We ought to pour that out because of how generous Jesus has been to us. We ought to be that generous. And for seven weeks, I want us to just really dig into this. What does that look like? How do we live that kind of a lifestyle? How do we have that attitude? How can we practice? Where do we need to stretch? Where can we grow to become more like Jesus? Some of you are like, okay, let's get through this one and we'll get on to Christmas. That'll be better. You know, what do I have to do? Listen, that attitude right there, young man, That attitude is the attitude you take towards paying taxes. This is different. Think about the definition of generosity. A readiness to give more than is strictly necessary or expected. I can sum it up in three words. And then some. And then some. Okay, what's the minimum? I'll do that. And then some. Now you're starting getting into the realm of, of generosity. What's, what's expected of me? I'll, I'll do that, and then some. All right, what's required? I'll, I'll, I'll do those requirements, and then some. What's normal? What do, okay, I'll do that, and then some. It's to go beyond and have this readiness to give, just like Jesus did for us, and then some. I, I want to push pause right now for just a minute, because I want to call some of you out. Some of you right now, with what I've talked about, with the name of this series, you've already drawn a conclusion. Let let me just, you don't have to say, yeah, that was, let me tell you what some of you, there's one of three conclusions some of you have already drawn. One of the conclusions you've already drawn, because where we're going with this is you're like, they must be down on the budget. Okay? Or, some of you might be saying, oh, this is the old annual financial series. Or, with a topic like generous, this is probably some capital campaign. We're going into 2020. It's going to be 2020 vision. How original. Okay, great. All right. Let me just kind of tell you about these three. One, we're not down on the budget because of your faithfulness. Two, this is not a financial series. And by the way, I haven't given the annual financial series for about two or three years. <laughs> that leaves one more. Capital campaign, 2020 vision. This is not a campaign. There are no brochures, there will not be a banquet, there won't be pledge cards, and read my lips, we won't have a big thermometer to see how close we're getting to the faith and the challenge goals. Okay, so now, can you just relax and listen again? Because some of you are already shutting down and throwing your wallets back in the car. I I just want to say, in this series for seven weeks on generosity, very little 
There is going to be one segment, but very little of it has to do with money at all. I mean, think about this. When, when Jesus said, or when it says about Jesus that he was, who was rich became poor so that we become rich, is that talking about money? No, no, no. That's a generosity that transcends the monetary. It's something far beyond just the money. It's something far greater than that. And as we look at this, we're going to see that generosity goes beyond just the money piece. All right, here, here's a, a little quiz. Don't think too hard. The answer is not Jesus, but just shout it out. You hear the word generous, generosity. What would be the opposite of that? Greed. 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 Good, good answer. Okay, no one else answering anything. Good, greed. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus comes to, to his followers and he says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, which implies that greed isn't one size fits all. That there might be multiple different facets. There are different faces of greed, that there are different ways, that, and, and be aware of that. Could it be that the converse is true as well? If there are many facets of greed, could it be that there are many different facets of generosity? There are many different faces, there are many different ways that generosity can manifest itself in our lives and through our lives. And to take a look at that and see. And so we're going to, every single week, we're gonna be looking at another facet of this. Um, in, in Acts chapter 20, there's this line, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, and then he goes on, he tells a phrase, there's a phrase. Here's an interesting thing. The phrase that Paul speaks of here, and I know we're kind of taking this out of context. This is when he's leaving Ephesus, meets with them, he's going back to Jerusalem, he's taking care of all of his needs uh, while he's there. He says, remembering the words that our Lord Jesus said, and he gives them a phrase. Here's the fascinating thing about this phrase that he says. He's quoting Jesus, but we don't know when Jesus said this. We don't know where he was. We don't know what the context was. Because the phrase that he quotes of Jesus is not recorded by any of the gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, none of them record it. But it appears that everyone's very familiar with this phrase. Like, oh yeah, that's what Jesus said. And maybe, maybe the gospel writers didn't record it because Jesus said it all the time, maybe. Maybe he finished this all the time because he knew that we needed to get this into our minds. And so they said, yeah, well, you know, everyone knows he says that, everyone heard that. And maybe it's one of those things where when, when someone will hear that, that phrase, they say, oh yeah, Jesus said that. I mean, we have those kind of phrases, we hear that and we know who said that. Some of you who are old enough, I am not a crook, you think. I was gonna say, was anyone born in the 70s? Nixon, okay, okay. how about this? I, I did not inhale. I mean, see, we just, we know who said these things. Haters gonna hate, 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 but I'm gonna shake it off. Come on, everyone knows, right? Come on, help me out, encounter Taylor Swift, of course. And maybe it's just one of these statements that, that everyone's like, oh yeah, Jesus said that. Here's the crazy thing about this statement that Jesus said, is that it is in the mainstream of our conversations even today and most people don't know that it was Jesus who originated the statement most people never give attribution to who the quote is by in fact I would venture to say and we're not gonna embarrass anyone all of you have heard this statement many of you have said this statement and a lot of you had no idea that it was Jesus who originally said it and Paul says Remembering the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, quoting Jesus who said, it is more blessed to give 
than to receive. How many of you have ever heard that phrase, ever, ever, ever? How many of you have heard it from someone and you know they know Jesus, they don't know that Jesus said it? All right, yeah, they're just saying it's just a good thing, all right. Jesus said this phrase, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And it's interesting, it's the same word blessed, it's the same word he uses in the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. And whenever Jesus talks that way about this is the path to the blessed life, it's so counterintuitive, it's so countercultural. It, you know, this, I, and I think this is in your notes, the, the definition of this blessed is it's the, the Greek word makarios. Makarios means this supremely fortunate, happy, well off. And he says, you want a life that's supremely fortunate, that's happy, that's well off, like people are going, you are so lucky. He says, here's the path to life in the Beatitudes. And it's things like, seriously? Poor in spirit? Meek? Hungry and thirsting for righteousness, merciful, those kind of things. And here he comes to that again. He says, you want to know the way to the blessed life? It is more blessed to give than to receive. And I think most of us would say, yeah, I, you know, I, I generally agree with that. Of course, we don't want to be greedy. We want to be self-centered. We want to help others out. But, but I wonder, what if... What if Jesus didn't mean this as a general principle in life, a, a good guideline to rule your life? What if Jesus meant this as a literal, absolute truth? That when there's some act of generosity, that the benefactor is actually more blessed than the beneficiary. That the one who was generous actually gets more blessed than the one who received the generosity. What if he's like, no, no, I'm serious about this. Not just a, yeah, generally be kind and good and, and help some other folks out. I mean, hundreds of years earlier, Solomon in his wisdom uh, says, a generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. And we've seen this. We've seen people who hold on, who are stingy, who are miserly and how miserable they are. We've seen people who are generous, who are gracious, who just share and how joy-filled they are. And Jesus comes along and says, you want the blessed life? It's a life of generosity and it's the life that he lived. When you start doing this, the blessing is multiplied. Yes, you help someone else out, you, you bless them, but the reality is you receive a blessing as well and maybe even the greater blessing because you're the generous one. Now, as we go into this, there's, there's two things I wanna caution us about. Uh, one of the things is this whole concept has been, oh wow, abused by some uh, preachers even to, to turn it into kind of a prosperity theology. You know, if you will give, then God's obligated and he's going to have to bless you and you're going to always be wealthy and healthy and all this stuff. And that's not what this is about. And the reality is if we start getting into this whole thing of, well, yeah, okay, so if I'm generous, then I'm going to be more blessed, and that'll be great. And, and that becomes our motive. Our motive starts getting muddied up. And here's the crazy thing, that when that starts happening, this sounds like, it sounds like a total oxymoron, that our generosity becomes motivated by our greed. Because of, I do this not because I want to be following Jesus or I want to help. I do this because I want to get something more. And so generosity being motivated by greed is way out of balance. It's way off. Authentic God-honoring generosity doesn't keep score. 
It isn't this, well, God, look, I gave, now, now what, what am I getting? Or, hey, I did this for you, how are you gonna bless me? This quid pro quo thing. You know, I'm always looking for the, for the payback, the blessing. How's it coming back to me? Listen, that's like secondary, and it might be in a, in a level that, in an area or, or at a depth that, that you don't see this, you know, one-for-one one return on the investment. So I want to caution us against that. The second thing I want to caution us against is kind of the, the win-then mentality when it comes to generosity. Well, when I get out of this season, then I'll be more generous with my time. You know, when I get out of college, then I can be more generous. So when I get this job, when I, when I get this kind of a position, I will have greater influence and then I can be more generous and I can make a bigger impact. You know, when I get married, we can be a team and then, and when we have kids and then as a family, when we get rid of these kids, when the college debts are done, then we can, you know, it's all this when, then, and then someday, and then I'm going to make a big impact. It's going to be a big splash. I'm going to change the world. And I want to caution us against that whole when, then thing. Uh, this last August, when we uh, hosted uh, the Global Leadership Summit, um, one of my favorite speakers this year was Liz Bohannon. She, um, she spoke. She also wrote this book, Beginner's Pluck, which actually uh, we got to have re early release copies. It doesn't come out actually till Tuesday. Um, but I loved her, her talk. I loved her book. And one of the things that she talks about in her book is this whole thing, the book called uh, Beginner's Pluck, is, was to dream small. And here's the essence of her story on that that she had this heart for girls and women, especially in undeveloped world uh, countries, where they are undereducated, underemployed, they don't have opportunities, and very often they're oppressed. And she just had this heart, she wanted to change things, she wanted to make the world a better place, she wanted to in fact, Im impact hundreds and thousands and even millions of women and girls and all that. And then she came to this realization with all these big dreams that she had to do all of this stuff, she realized she didn't even know one girl or woman who was in the condition that she's gonna go change. And so she began to reduce her big dream down to a small dream to where she said, you know what, maybe I need to just go meet somebody be a part of her life, be her friend, and walk with her in the mess and the ups and downs of her life. And she said, when I started to dream small, suddenly now I realized I need zero million dollar budgets to do this. I need zero positions of influence. I need zero titles. I need zero permission. I need zero strategic plans. And when I recognize that, then I had zero excuses. And I thought that is so phenomenal because so often we get this idea, even the, the since then, since this is so big and I can't change it, then I'm not going to do anything. Or when I can actually impact all that, then I'm not going to do anything. And I want to caution us against that. To say, God, what do you want to do in my life now? How can I be generous now? How can I become more like the attitude of Christ right now? How can I live today in a way that is more blessed for me to give than to receive? And I honestly think one of the best examples of this entire concept that I've been talking about today is found in the book of Acts, what, what I'm referring to as the gazelle of Joppa. The gazelle of Joppa. You've probably never heard that term before. I made it up. <laughs> uh, Joppa is a city, a port city in the Bible. It's most famous because of Jonah. Some of you know that story. Jo God told Jonah, uh, you need to go to Nineveh, the great city of Nineveh. And Jonah says, I think I'll go to Tarshish. And so he goes down to the port city of Joppa. That's, I just told you that. And, uh, and he gets on a boat and that doesn't go well for him. 
That's, Joppa get, gets its, its big fame for, for Jonah. There, there's also in Acts uh, 10, I believe, where Peter has a vision, uh, big sheet let down, and then Cornelius. So that's a cool story too. But I want to talk about the gazelle of Joppa. And the gazelle of Joppa doesn't get a ton of airtime. Found in Acts chapter 9, and it says this. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. Any of you remember um, Bewitched? Twinkle, 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 twinkle. Has nothing to do with this. All right. A disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas. Just a fun name to say. Dorcas. Tabitha is Aramaic. Dorcas is Greek. It's one of those days when you say, I'm feeling a little more Aramaic today. Call me Tabitha. And if you have your Bible, you look down, there's a little footnote in many of your Bibles. It says, Tabitha and Dorcas, when translated, is the word gazelle. You think about gazelle, this animal of grace and beauty. A gazelle named Dorcas doesn't fit. But it's a gazelle nonetheless. And the interesting thing about Dorcas, or Tabitha, is that the Bible doesn't give us a lot of details about her life. We don't know if she was young or if she was old. We don't know if she was married or single. We don't know if she's a widow, if she had kids. We don't know if she's rich or poor. We know none of those details. We just know this woman named Gazelle, Dorcas, Tabitha. And in the story, we only hear about her after she's died. And there's not a lot of details about her death. Again, we don't know if she was old and she'd had this disease that she'd suffered with for years, if she was young and there was some tragic thing that happened and she was, we don't know anything about her death at all, just that she had died. We can put together that she didn't have a position of prominence in the early church, that she didn't have any titles of authority. She doesn't appear to have had any kind of budget or any big strategic plan, but she makes her way into the Bible after she dies, and there's just a little glimpse about her life and the reputation that she's built and the kind of life that she led. This is what it says. You know, here's this disciple named Tabitha, when translated is Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. That's all it says about her life. She's just known for doing good, for helping the poor for recognizing that she wants to have the same attitude that Jesus had, to recognize that it is more blessed to give than to receive, to live this kind of life, to have an impact. And so Peter, who's in the area, is called in. And then uh, three verses later, we see the kind of impact that she had. Now, we don't know, again, anything about her life. You can kind of maybe speculate on some things, but it's purely speculation. One more uh, piece is that in the Bible, whenever widows are mentioned, you know, God has a special place in his heart for widows and orphans. These were the most vulnerable, some of the most vulnerable groups, widows especially, in their culture, did not have a man to protect them. In their culture, did not have a man to provide for them. Widows are almost always poor, taken advantage of, and this is what it says in verse 39. All the widows, Joppa, all the widows stood around him, this is Peter, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. So Peter's there, 
and there's all these widows and they're crying. All of them are crying. Um, uh, I think it was um, Ralph Waldo Emerson is given, uh, is given attribution for this quote. There's question whether he was the, the one that originated. But he said, apparently, when you were born, you were crying and everyone else was rejoicing. Live in such a way that when you die, you're rejoicing and everyone else is crying. And that's how she lived her life. She lived her life in such a way she dies, all these widows are crying. And they're showing him these robes. Here are these women who have been poor and destitute, threadbare clothes, sandals that hardly can even stand on their feet with this. And, and she made this robe for me and it kept me warm. She made these clothes for me and it gave me something decent to wear. I had dignity because of what she did. There was no big budget. And look at this, Tabitha Dorcas. She didn't eradicate world hunger. She didn't do away with all the poverty of Joppa. She didn't change every widow's life. She didn't cure diseases. She didn't fix AIDS. She just thought, this woman has a need and I can do, I can sow. And, and, I, and I know that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And, and I want to have the attitude that is in Christ Jesus. She could have said, well, since I can't change our culture, I can't change the way widows are treated, I can't change the social economic status, I'm not going to do anything. No, no, no. I can do something. I can make this widow a robe. I can make this widow a blouse. I can make this widow a skirt. And she did that. It's an amazing thing that she did. Now, when we set that bar up there at your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Like I said, I, I'm, you'll get there before I do. I'm spending the rest of my life working towards that one, even with the power of the Holy Spirit, because I, big project here. And maybe sometimes we see that as, well, since I'll never reach it, how could I ever start? Then maybe we ought to say the first step is to try to be like Tabitha. And so my, my challenge and exhortation to you, to us, is this, be a Dorcas. <laughs> Some of you don't have to try at all. Be a Dorcas. What if the greatest compliment we had around here is you are such a Dorcas. What a Dorcas. What if we were a group of Dorcases or Dorkai? I don't know what the plural of Dorcas is. What if we became a herd of gazelles, these, these creatures of grace and beauty? who are trying to be like Jesus with his attitude, a mindset, a thinking that, that dictates our behavior and our lifestyle, recognizing that when he said it's more blessed to give than receive, it's not just a general good principle, but it's the literal way to a life that is blessed. And what if we begin to take seriously those verses? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive and to live a life of generosity. So Paul writes to young Timothy and he says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. This is my desire for us. And so our challenge this week, even this week, is that every single day that you would find little ways, how can I be generous? How can I bless someone else? How can I be a little bit more of a Dorcas? How can I be transformed with an attitude the same with that of Christ Jesus?